Excellent. Well, good evening. I'm very happy to see such a full house out of term. We have yet to see the, the great influx of most LSE students, so it's very inspiring to see so many people interested in, in these very important topics. I'm Jean-Paul Faguet, reader in the Political Economy of Development at the Department of International Development here at the LSE. I'll be chairing the event. My main task, happily, is to, prevent, to present, first of all, Professor Heiner Flasbeck, Dr. Professor Heiner Flasbeck, who's director of the Division on Globalization and Development Strategies at UNCTAD and lead author on this year's Trade and Development Report, which, as he explained to me, is the ninth such report that he, this is the ninth year that he's leading this team, producing this very important and, and influential document, which he'll be telling us about. Um, Dr. Flasbeck has also been uh, on the German Council of Economic Experts, before that the Federal Ministry of Economics, before that, the German Institute for Economic Research and the Federal Ministry of Finance as well. He has a PhD in economics from the Free University of Berlin and he's also an honorary professor at the University of Hamburg. He'll be followed as discussant by Professor Robert Wade, who needs no introduction for those of you who have been at the LSE. Robert is professor of the political economy of development in the, my same department, the Department of International Development, and author, amongst many other works, of Village Republics, The Economic Conditions of Collective Action in India, and an extremely influential book, Governing the Market, Economic Theory and the Role of Governance in East Asia's Industrialization. I've asked um, Heiner to speak for about half an hour, and then Robert will give a discussion, and then we should have plenty of time left over for questions. Thank you very much, and could you join me in giving a warm welcome to Professor Fass. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, happy to be here again in the LSE and to discuss our report as the first stage, so to say, of the proceedings and the dissemination of this report. Today's meeting in, is nevertheless particular in three different res respects that I'm going to mention briefly. The first is that this is the last appearance of mine in this room to launch a report because I'm retiring from, from UNCTAD at the end of this year. But that's not so important. The second one, the second particularity of this meeting today is that I'm talking mainly about developed, economy and, uh, developed economies and much less about developing economies. That has a particular reason that has to do with um, the third point that is absolutely extraordinary at this stage of the proceedings, so to say, in the world economy. And that is that we're reaching the end of something. We're reaching the climax of a certain thinking and um, something will collapse. We don't know exactly how it will collapse, but it has to collapse. And we don't know what will come after it. And we can all only work hard to avoid something very sincere and something very bad. So this is unfortunately not good news from the world economy, but I have to start like that because the situation that we are facing now in the world economy is really extremely serious. The point is uh, another particular point of this report is, you know, we have this report always split into two parts. The first part deals with the outlook of the economy, the global economy, 
in its different parts. And the second part has a particular point, has a special uh, topic that we are dealing with that we are trying to an analyze a bit more deeply and a bit more critically sometimes as others do. This time we have the second part on inequality. Inequality is indeed what we, what we are uh, looking for uh, in this report beyond, beyond the outlook beyond the outlook for the global economy. But inequality, and this is, this is really extraordinary, inequality is intricately linked with the economic, economic situation of the world economy at this moment of time. And this is going to be the message of my, of my lecture much more than anything else. So I will not go through my PowerPoint as I did normally, I will just leave it like that and show you one chart and we're concentrating on one chart and on one message of the report. But to introduce the topic, I, I'm going back to the Financial Times and a quote that I found in the Financial Times from Monday this week, where the Financial Times has a long, a full page uh, about this meeting of the central bankers in uh, the... Um, what is the name? Oh. Uh, well, what? Jackson Hole. Jackson Hole, yeah. <laughs> Just escaped me. Jackson Hole, the Jackson Hole meeting. And in this Jackson Hole meeting, after a long discussion about different aspects, it seems that everyone was quite desperate about the outlook of the world economy and about the action, the action that is left, the action, the possibilities for action that are left at this moment of time. And then comes an interesting, an interesting paragraph where they say there are few possible reasons why repeated rounds of central bank communication and quantitative easing as the policy of buying long-dated assets in an effort to drive down long-term interest rates is known have not brought about a strong recovery, have not brought about a strong recovery. And then the next sentence is very important. They say one one possibility why it did not bring about a recovery is that something structurally, structural has changed to hold back growth. Something structural has changed to hold back growth. You know, whenever economists use the word structural, they don't know what they should say. <laughs> because structural is, is a word that is used for everything and nothing. But then, then it goes on a little while and then comes another interesting point. Speaking from the floor in Wyoming, Donald Korn, Korn uh, another former Fed vice chairman, uh, chairman, now at the Brookings Institution, raised the possibility, the possibility of something deeper going on. Something deeper going on. And then he continues, perhaps related to savings behavior of the changed, or, or, no, or, or the change distribution of income between labor and capital. That's interesting. Something deeper is going on and that may be related to the changed income distribution between labor and capital. And that is that exactly is the finding that we have in this trade and development report. That exactly is the finding that we have. There's something deeper going on that does not allow anymore the traditional instruments of economic policy of macroeconomics to be implemented and to be effective as they were 
in the last, well, something like 50 years, since 50 years. This is a dramatic change. And I'm rushing to my PowerPoint without showing you anything. As I said, you can look at the report. It looks like that for those who didn't get a copy. But I just want to concentrate on this chart. I just want to look at this chart. And this chart is extremely um, interesting. Why is it so interesting? What it shows first is very simple, very simple things, namely on the left-hand scale, we have what is called the wage share, the share of wages in GDP. And that for the developed countries, for a huge group of developed countries, all countries where we could get data on. So we have the wage share of the developed countries. And on the right-hand scale, well, it's a different scale, but uh, uh, you see the movement of unemployment. And now, if you look a bit carefully at the chart, you will see, well, there is a cyclical movement, a certain cyclical movement in the wage share and in unemployment, where whenever the wage share rises, a short time later, uh, unemployment rises. Oh, good, would everybody say. Neoclassical economists would say, oh, wonderful. That's exactly what we're expecting, namely, wage shares rising and then unemployment rises. So tell the people to flexibilize their labor markets and then everything is good. Well, it's not so simple, because if you look a bit more carefully, then you see that beyond the cyclical movement, there's something, should I call it structural? No. <laughs> something deeper, something deeper in this chart. And that is that we have a fall of the wage share beyond the cyclical movements from the mid of the 70s to today. It's an ongoing fall of the wage share. And you see, even if you look at the, the short jump of the wage share upwards in 2008, which is not uh, the result of uh, kind of aggressive uh, wage policies. No, it's just the result of the economy dropping like a stone in 2008, and then profits being a bit more flexible than wages. That's the only reason for this cyclical movement. It has nothing to do with aggressive wage policies or, or really rising wages. It's just the reflex of the, uh, of the cyclical movement. So, but the long-term trend, so to say, is absolutely clear. We have a falling wage share. In the mid of the 70s, we reached a high uh, that was at the time of the first oil price explosion. We reached a higher, the highest level, and from then on, we are, we are going down all the time uh, till the lowest level that we have reached now, which is something like 58% is only the wage income in relation to GDP, and the rest, 42, is then uh, profits or capital income. But what has happened when the world, so to say, the developed world, has reached the lowest level of the wage share ever in the last 50 years, and it's clearly the lowest level? What has happened exactly at that time? Well, unemployment has jumped to the highest level ever seen since the Second World War. At the same time, when the wage share has reached the lowest level, unemployment has jumped dramatically up to the highest level. And this is the message of this chart, and this is very difficult to digest for normal neoclassical, neoclassical theory. Because why? why did the wage share fall since 1975 all the time? Well, because at that time, un unemployment really jumped up, was rising dramatically, and everybody said, oh, see, there is a clear correlation. The wage share has gone up, and then 
uh, unemployment has risen. So what, have, what we have to do is to bring the wage share down. But what, what should never have happened again is that unemployment jumps. But unemployment has jumped. Take the situation of a country like the United States. In the United States, everybody, all economists from right to left, all politicians are discussing inequality. They're discussing the rising inequality. And everybody says, well, there is a trend, a sharp trend to rising inequality in the United States. This is only one aspect of it. There are other aspects uh, to it, namely this 1%, 99% relationship. Uh, Robert may talk a bit about that. Uh, so, but this is a feature of the US economy for uh, decades, one could say decades, at least for 20, 30 years. But nevertheless, in the United States, unemployment jumped from something like 5% to 9% after the crisis. And it's not going down. It's only a tiny bit going down. It's still 8%. So what has happened? What are we going to do now? Let's turn it from, uh, start from this side. What are we going to do now? Are we going to cut wages? Yeah, this is the normal market outcome. You see, when in the market you have a disequilibrium, it's not only a disequilibrium in theoretical terms for economists, but it's, it's a power a disequilibrium. At the moment, unemployment rises like that, jumps up being related to wages or not. What happens? The power in the market shifts to the employers and away from the employees. And this is a dramatic change. And this, in this way, in this dimension, has never happened before in the modern history of economics. Because it means, it means that from now on, indeed, we have a pressure on wages. Be it justified or not, we'll talk about that in a minute. Being justified or not, but we have a huge pressure on wages. Despite the fact that wages have never risen before. So the normal outcome would be, in a neoclassical model, would be that first you have rising wages, rising wages all the time, sorry, and then you have a rising wage share, the wage share reaching uh, a very high level, and then unemployment rises, and then, so to say, the pressure on wages would normalize the balance of power in the labor market. But this time is not the case. We have unemployment totally unrelated to wages. And this is extremely dramatic, because what happens now, what happens in the U.S. economy, not to speak of Europe, we come to Europe maybe, a bit later, but in Europe we're cutting wages everywhere. Unemployment reaches the highest levels you can imagine, 20-25 percent in Spain, and we start cutting wages. But what does it mean? Let's take the example of the United States. Why is the United States not coming out of the recovery? Why is it so extraordinary? We have done everything, as the central bankers stated rightly. We have done everything. We have done fiscal stimulus first. Then we have the most expansionary monetary policy one can imagine. Not only uh, short-term interest rates at zero, but the long-term interest rates are brought down in the United States to a level never seen before by quantitative easing and other measures of the central bank. But nothing happens. So why is nothing happening? Well, because there is no normal cycle anymore. 
And why is there no normal cycle anymore? The answer is very simple and it has to do with inequality. Because the average people, the normal household in the United States, under the pressure of high unemployment, cannot and does not expect that their income will rise in the next years anytime. And this is a fundamental break with our history. It's a fundamental break because for the first time we have a situation where it is obvious that your income will not rise, you will have pressure on your income, so you're not consuming anymore. But if the United States economy does not consume anymore, what happens? It can never get out of the recovery, uh, out of the slump. It can never go into recovery again. Because the United States domestic, uh, private consumption is absolutely dominant, and investment depends on, on consumption, everything depends on consumption, and if consumption is not reviving, then there is no revival at all. And this is a trap, you see? It's a trap or a deadlock. We have moved the economy into a deadlock. Normally, as I, when I grew up as an economist, everybody said, oh, recession is recession, is no problem. Of course, no problem, you go into recession, then it takes you two quarters, three quarters, then the expectation of the people are going to normalize, they start consuming again, you have low interest rates, they start lending again, so what's the problem? You're getting out of recession, then it's over. It's wrong, it's over. This kind of pattern does not exist anymore. And we have, we have done everything in the last 20 years to lead the developed economies into exactly that situation by the kind of policies that we are following by putting enormous pressure all the time on wage flexibilization. You know, in the middle of that period here somewhere, in the middle of uh, 1995, there were some famous studies coming out from the OECD called Job Study. These job studies had only one main message, namely you all have to flexibilize your labor market. And if you don't flexibilize your labor market, you will not uh, have a chance to survive in the globalized economy uh, and so on. And they even went so far that they said, you see, it's, it's very simple. E economics is very simple. If you have a flexible labor market and something bad happens, so like, say, 2008, you have a big financial crisis, the whole world collapses, it's very simple. What you do is you all, you're pricing yourself back into the market. That is exactly the words that they used in 94. They said, everyone has the possibility to price him or herself back into the labor market by cutting your wage, by accepting lower wages. Hmm? That simple it is in the conviction of many people. But it's not that simple because, because every, if everybody tries in, in the face of high unemployment where there's an overall high unemployment, not only in a small spot of the economy, if there's overall high unemployment, everybody, if everybody tries to price him or herself back into the market, it's going to end in disaster. Because for the overall economy, it's not so simple. Nothing is given in the overall economy. Demand, that's the most important thing. The overall demand of the economy is not given. And if it is not given, you, if you cut your wages and everybody cuts their wage and is willing to be that the wage is cut by the employers, is willing to accept much lower wages, 
then we're going to end in disaster. And this is the message of this chart. And this is the message of the Trade and Development Report. Now I come to some qualifications. Some people say, no, it's not true. This guy is wrong. This guy is terribly wrong. There are some countries out there who have who got it right. They got it right. Huh? The main country, the main, the most important country that got it right by flexibilizing the labor market is Germany. Hmm? Everybody knows. The leader in Europe, the only stronghold of Europe, got it right by flexibilizing the labor market. They got their acts together and they have survived nicely and uh, without any damage. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not true. It's not true at all. I'm German, you know, so I have to speak a bit about my own country. Yeah, indeed, Germany has flexibilized the labor markets. In Germany, politics have put enormous pressure on the unions not to do what they had done that was at the end of the 90s, what they had done in the 40 years before, namely to have normally rising wages, wages rising in line with the productivity of the country plus the inflation target of the country. They put enormous pressure on the unions not to do that anymore. Well, the reason was, oh, there's a Chinese challenge out there and you have to fight the Asian, the Asian, the hordes of Asians that are swamping Europe if you don't fight against them. So what happened, Germany cut its wage, it, and the wage share mainly. It was not an absolute cut in wages, but wages were stagnating despite rising productivity all the time. So Germany is a classic example of a country that did exactly that, namely to uh, bring about a, falling, a fall in the wage share. And what happened? Now you have two components. The one is the domestic component. And the domestic component was exactly, and is exactly, as I said before, Namely, it is a disaster because people did not have income expectations. The in income expectation is zero for 15 years now in Germany, and it is not only an expectation, it's the reality is that average income, mass income, what we call mass income, that is wages, salaries, pensions, are flat. There's nothing, no increase at all. So what was the reaction domestically? Well, they stopped to increase their consumption. Domestic demand in Germany is as flat as income of the masses, despite an enormous increase of profits. So seen from the purely domestic side, it, was a, it is a disaster. It is a disaster. But something else happened. Something came to rescue, so to say. What came to rescue Germany well, that was that exactly at the moment when it started this kind of wage pressure, to put wage pressure uh, on the unions and on the workers, it became a member of the currency union. And what happened in the currency union? Well, everybody had agreed that the inflation target in the currency union should be 2%, so everybody should follow an inflation target of 2%. More or less, most of them did, but Germany not. Germany remained below the inflation target of 2% all the time. 
Some others overshot the inflation target of 2%. You all know these countries, Greece, Portugal, Spain, Italy. France not. France was exactly on the inflation target. So what happens if in a currency union one country has all the time an inflation rate of 1% and the others have an inflation rate of 2.5? And it was not more than 2.5. The inflation target was 2%, so it was 2.5 in Greece and 1% in Germany. Yeah, well, if you accumulate that over 10 years, you end up with a gap in competitiveness between the two countries or between southern Europe and Germany of something like 25%. And if you have a competitiveness gap of 25%, the guy who is on the, on the upper side is lost. We have done a lot of studies in UNCTAD over the last years looking at the different currency crises that we have seen uh, over the world. We have sometimes discussed it here at the LSE. And always the result is, when you're overvalued, and this is kind of overvaluation in a currency union, huh? you have no currency anymore, but you're overvalued, your prices are too high. When you're overvalued by something like 20 to 25%, you're gone. You lose market shares, you lose uh, so dramatically in competitiveness that your, your people are start to buying imports and nothing else, and your export firms are, are dramatically damaged. So this is exactly what happened in the currency union. And that is why Germany came, apparently, like Phoenix from the ashes out of its flexibilization of the labor market. That's the only reason. Half of the German growth in the last 10 years is due to positive contribution from export minus import from the current account. But if one country has a positive contribution coming from the external side, other countries definitely, by definition, so to say, and logically, have negative contributions. Trade may be a positive sum game, but the balance of trade are not a positive sum game because for the world as a whole, there is no balance of trade. As long as we're not trading with the Mars or the Venus, the balance is, not, is a zero-sum game. So Germany benefited dramatically from the losses of the others, and that is why it is where it is today. But obviously, this rule cannot be generalized, as not everybody can increase its competitiveness. Competitiveness is a relative concept. We should start understanding that. It's one of the two sentences, nobody in, in, in Europe, nobody is wrong. But no politician in Europe is willing or able to understand. I leave it to you to decide whether it's willingness or ability. I fear it's ability. Huh? Ability is worse than willingness, you know. Unwilling people at a certain point are willing to learn. Inable people are not able to learn. Then we are really desperate if they are unable to learn, unable to understand. Yet the one sentence, let me say that, the one sentence is that we should learn to overcome the Euro crisis and all the rest. The one sentence is competitiveness is a relative concept. But you find Euro summit decisions, statements by all the leaders of Europe saying that everybody should improve its competitiveness. And the second sentence is, I come to that in a minute if I'm allowed to. The second sentence is that governments cannot save in the same way as a private household does. Because if governments save and everybody else saves, the economy collapses. 
If one private household, you know in Germany is the famous word of the Swabian housewife, our finance minister is guided by the Swabian housewife. If you have the Swabian housewife cut, tightening her belt, it's okay, nobody cares. But if the government tightens the belt at exactly at the same time when the private people are forced to tighten their belt also, then we're ending in disaster. And this is exactly what has happened. But again, this sentence cannot be communicated in a, in a reasonable, in a rational way in Europe anymore. There are some people out there who try, who try hard by writing something every day, more or less. But it doesn't, it doesn't go through. It doesn't go through into politics. Why, again, I leave it to you to decide. So, but that's a bit apart from my, my topic, but the point is, so the point is, if the world, the world as a whole and the developed world is too big to fight against the developing world, so what the developed world could do, and in this dilemma they could say we're fighting now the developing world by cutting our wages, by uh, tightening our belt, we are, going, we are going to be the winner of the competition of nations by doing exactly what Germany has done. But unfortunately, the rest of the world is too small. If all of them, Europe, Japan, and the and, uh, United States start to, to do this kind of policies, the rest of the world will be on its knees in a, in a minute, so to say. So it's impossible. It's impossible to go for that kind of policies. So what are we going to do now? We have to do something. Something has to happen. If you look at the at the election campaign in the United States, the, the speeches of the people, you see, they would like to say what, what, we, what they could do, but they're not able to say anything. They don't know. They just don't know. They don't know what to do. Because they said to themselves, well, monetary policy is out. There's all the, everything that is possible has been done. Fiscal policy is blocked politically because government debt is the worst thing in the world. Huh? We know, all know that. You know that, sure. Government debt is very bad, so the government should not do anything. Government should save. But unfortunately, at the same time, the private people are all saving. We have in many countries the fact that even the company sector is saving. Imagine, the companies are making so much profit that they don't know what to do with it. They're not investing it, they're depositing it at the banks. And here's the only way out. If a lot of people save, get their money to the banks, and the central banks are providing liquidity to the banks, we could sell, save ourselves in a simple way. Huh? We're creating a new bubble. That would be good, huh? The bubble is the way out. Because if we have a wonderful bubble again, and it's starting somewhere in some corners of the financial markets, if you have a nice bubble, then everybody believes that he or she is rich suddenly. That, by the way, was the, the only way that the United States could survive the last 20 years. Huh? Mr. Clinton is celebrated as a successful uh, economic policymaker, but it was a bubble. It was a bubble that overlaid, so to say, the dismal situation of the American average household. So the people believe that they are rich, and when, when you're rich, you're spending money. Huh? 
And if you think your house has reached the highest level ever and will your house, the price of your house will, will continue rising forever, that was exactly the expectation, then you can go on spending. So a bubble would be good. But if we're not succeeding in creating a bubble, then we're lost. So because then, what, what can we do? No fiscal policy, no monetary policy, no nothing else. Wages are falling, expectations are diminished, so what's the way out? Yeah, the answer is simple. There is no way out. There is no way out. We're trapped. The developed economies have trapped themselves in their own ideology. They were driven by a certain ideology that ideology said, flexibilize your labor market till the end, till everybody, every single person has to negotiate with his or her employer to uh, find the right, the market wage. And that led to the situation that with rising or high unemployment, the wages were falling all the time. So everybody tried to price him or herself back into the market and the result is a disaster. The result is that we are totally blocked. What we are saying in this trade and development report, and this is very important for developing countries, I said I'm mainly talking about developed countries, but the lesson to be learned is extremely important. It's the most important for developing countries. Avoid that trap. Do everything to avoid that trap. And that means give your people expectations. Give them positive expectations. If your economy is growing, make sure that your people are participating in that growth of the economy. And not, and not as in many countries in Africa, Northern Africa, I should say. In the last 10 years, you always record 5% growth every year, 5, 6% growth. But the people see nothing of that. It never, never permeates through the economy into the hands and the pockets of the average people. This is the main mistake also in the developing world. Unfortunately, the database is very, very poor. But nevertheless, it's absolutely clear that there no country, with one exception maybe, I'm coming to that, with one exception, there's no country at this, this moment in the world where it is absolutely clear that the people are participating in the success, and the success is the productivity increase of, of, of their economy. And the only exception is China, where really wages are rising, sometimes even beyond, beyond the productivity increase. But all the other countries are not able, not able to go for such a policy because they're blocked by the ideology, the ideology that labor markets have to be flexible and that in the flexible labor market, high unemployment puts pressure on, on wages. No, we have to overcome. We can only overcome that deadlock by overcoming this dogma. Only if we're able to overcome this dogma that flexibility of the labor market is a good thing and that the market will find a solution of this, of the, in this trap then we, we're finding a way out. And this means that governments have to change their mind. If Mr. Obama would go into his uh, election, election uh, campaign and, his, and give speeches saying, well, what we need is a new agreement in this country. By the way, in the United States is an interesting book by, I'm bad with names today, uh, 
of uh, political uh, scientist, in, I think it's from Harvard, who said, the, but the title is The Assumptions Economists Make. It's a very interesting book. And he shows, for example, that in 1948, in Detroit, in the automobile industry, there was a consensus, there was a clear and explicit consensus that the formula that wages should rise with productivity and the inflation target was given. There was a consensus about this formula. In Germany, there was a consensus about this formula for 30 years after the Second World War. In Japan, you had it. You had it everywhere in all countries that were successful. But we have abandoned it. We don't want it anymore. We want to be flexible. We want to be flexible. And the result of our flexibility is that we're stuck. So if governments are not willing to overcome this dogma, to break this dogma, explicitly say we have, we have to have an agreement between employers and employees that wages are rising despite, despite a dismal situation of the economy and despite high unemployment, then we are not finding a way out. There is no way out. Forget about all the other structural things. People talk about structural things, as I said, they mean something that doesn't mean very much. Or they mean, if they mean something real but structural, then they mean flexibilizing, uh, flexibilization of the labor market. No? That is what they mean most of the time, with, with, structural, with structural adjustments or so. The whole structural adjustment of the IMF in the, in the past was based on these ideas. So, but if this is not possible, then there's only a little chance, uh, maybe no chance, but theoretically the only way would be with the traditional instruments, and believe me, this is even, even a bigger dogma in, in today's world, that the government has to increase its debt. Government have, governments have to do deficit spending. But you see, you're frightened, huh? That's really bad. That's even worse than saying wages should rise. More debt, or in a world where governments have already 100% of debt. What most people forget, it's 100% of current income. Huh? It's not 100% in relation to your, to your uh, wealth. It's 100% of current income. Those of you who own a house, have bought a house recently, know that their debt is much higher than 100%. So, ridiculous from that point of view. But even if it were high, even as, as high as in Japan, 240% of GDP, you have to use it because there's nothing else. What are you going to do? You're waiting for the change of expectation of the private households under the pressure of the labor market? You're waiting for monetary policy to find a miraculous instrument, a miracle instrument that they can use. Suddenly, Ben Bernanke comes out and says, I have it. No, even Ben Bernanke has said he is unable. He said it explicitly in the hearing of the Congress. He said he's unable to fight what they call in the United States the fiscal cliff. If next year they start saving as they decided, as it is, it is decided, they start saving at the 1st of January. In the government, they cut expenditure and raise taxes. Ben Bernanke said he's unable to fight it. It will deepen the recession. And the, here comes the, the very last and the most simple message. 
Debt is always a mirror picture of savings. As long as we have economies where people save, you need people who take on debt. And if people don't take on debt, the private people, because they are unsecure about their future, because they're under pressure, because they fear that they lose their job, yeah, who is going to be the, the one who takes the debt, who takes the savings and uses the savings in terms of spending? It can only be the government. And if people say government debt is the worst of all worlds, then they say, I have not understood economic, uh, economics at all. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. that was, I found that marvelously clear, the exposition of the logic. I've been asked to announce that there's a Twitter hashtag for this event, in case any of you are interested, which is hash LSE UNCTAD, yes, his agency. And now Professor Robert Wade. Well, um, thank you very much. I'm actually going to talk about, the, um, about UNCTAD and about the trade and development uh, report or reports. Um, and I'll begin with the point that this trade and development report is largely about inequality, income inequality, and the consequences of income inequality for, for example, for growth. Um, and that reminds me that in 2006, in this very room, um, the World Bank team that had just written the World Development Report called Equity and Development launched the report in this room. Um, and so they gave an account of the contents of this report, Equity and Development. And afterwards, um, I talked to the leader of the team about the process um, by which this topic had come to be approved. And he explained that they had, he and his team, had initially wanted the title of the report to be Inequality and Development. So this proposal went to the board of the World Bank, on which sit the representatives of the member countries, and the board vetoed the idea of a world development report on inequality and development, saying that inequality was a political concept, and because the World Bank was a apolitical organization, the World Bank could not talk about inequality. Um, so the team redrafted the proposal uh, to talk about, or to pretend that it was about equity, and development, making the distinction between inequality and equity in terms of inequality being about outcomes, that is the actual distribution of income, and equity being about opportunities to earn income. And when this proposal went to the board, the board said, okay, well, opportunities are apolitical, an apolitical concept, so go ahead and write the world development about equity, about opportunities. Um, and that's um, of some relevance to the, the current World Development Report and to UNCTAD because UNCTAD has been a much less central 
international organization than the World Bank, and therefore um, it has been able to get away with, so to speak, um, uh, a, pol a political argument, that is an argument about inequality as distinct from um, equity. Um, let me just tell you a bit about the uh, background of UNCTAD and the trade and development reports. I'm interested in the politics of ideas, the politics behind economic ideas, what ideas get accepted, what ideas get rejected. So UNCTAD was established in 1964 as a kind of think tank for developing countries um, and it has always been more responsive to the views of developing countries than to uh, have been other organizations in the UN family, such as the World Bank, the IMF, UNDP, and so on. Um, UNCTAD's mandate is negotiated every four years in a process which is governed by ministers from the member countries, that is, by politicians from the member countries. These are called quadrennial, quadrennial ministerial conferences. Since 2008 and the onset of this great slump, um, the Western countries divided into two groups, the EU group and then, whoops, and then the non-EU OECD group, but the Western countries, have become increasingly annoyed at UNCTAD's writings about the global crisis, especially as uh, articulated in the successive world, uh, trade and development reports since 2008. By the way, when I talk here of UNCTAD, I mean specifically the division that Heine he heads. That is, it's called the Division of Globalization and Development Strategies. That's important because UNCTAD is very divided in terms of what it thinks, much more divided, say, than the IMF or even than the World Bank. There are parts of UNCTAD that very much buy into the Washington Consensus agenda, but this division of globalization and development strategies has been different. Um, so the Western countries complain that UNCTAD, and remember when I say UNCTAD, I mean this division, which is responsible for the trade and development reports. The Western countries complain that UNCTAD was um, diluting its focus on developing countries by analyzing the cause of the crisis um, in Western countries and pointing the finger, so to speak, very diplomatically, but still pointing the finger to policy mistakes in Western countries, in the United States, in Britain, in Germany, in the rest of Europe. And it was prescribing appropriate policy, better policy responses for those Western governments, which were different from the policies being pursued by those governments. And um, the Western government said that the whole question of the causes of the crisis and appropriate policy responses to the crisis in the Western countries should be left to organizations that had the competence, competence to handle these issues like the G20, like the IMF and the OECD, uh, organizations which not incidentally are dominated by the West, as UNCTAD is not. Well, the quadrennial ministerial conference to be held in April of this year in Doha provided the Western countries with the opportunity to stop UNCTAD from researching and publishing on issues to do with the global crisis and the role of the Western countries and so on. 
So the negotiations over UNCTAD's work program for the next four years began in Geneva in late 2011 and continued up to when they shifted to Doha in, 20, in April of this year. The representatives of the Western countries negotiated in an impressively coordinated, well-coordinated way. On the other hand, the representatives of developing countries, uh, which were grouped into the G77 plus China, as it's called, they did not. They had very little unity amongst themselves. And in particular, through the, this, these months of negotiations about what UNCTAD was and was not allowed to do over the next four years, the representatives of developing countries, especially the big ones, simply took no, no leading role at all in defending developing country interests. Well, once the ministerial meeting began in Doha in April, only in the last few days did the big developing countries like Brazil, China, South Africa and others began seriously to push back this sort of steamroller of a Western agenda in order to give UNCTAD more policy space, more scope over the next four years for um, working on a global canvas, including the Western uh, governments, the Western states, rather than one which was restricted narrowly to impacts of the crisis on developing countries. Well, I was an observer at the Doha uh, meeting. One evening, I was returning to the hotel with a Norwegian, the man who was um, actually the deputy head of the Norwegian delegation. And he told me that his government, the Norwegian government, was rather uncomfortable to be grouped with these Western countries that were being so critical of UNCTAD. But he nevertheless went on to say, quote, UNCTAD does have a competence problem when it comes to global economic architecture and the global crisis. We agree that these subjects are better left to the G20 and the IMF. So I asked him on what basis did he and his government judged that what UNCTAD was saying lacked competence. And he said, well, um, uh, they had never actually read the trade and development reports. They didn't really know. But there was a consensus in the Western representatives that UNCTAD did not have the competence. And therefore, it should be excluded from talking about these things. That's the kind of basis that the, the Western countries were operating on. Well, in the end, the mandate for the next four years does give UNCTAD some wiggle room to work on global issues that the Western states do, don't want it to work on. But UNCTAD has to be very careful not to use phrases, toxic phrases in Western eyes, like policy space, as in developing countries should have policy space which kind of is code word for saying they should be skeptical of the Washington consensus. Um, UNCTAD has to be careful not to use another toxic phrase, quote, the enabling state. Um, representatives of the Western countries in Doha were very emphatic that phrases like this, policy space, enabling state, should be excluded from the mandate of UNCTAD. And they were very emphatic that it should really focus on things like um, youth and gender out there in developing countries, safely away from the big issues that were of concern to Western countries. 
So that, all that raises the question, why do the Western states um, now particularly want to marginalize UNCTAD? Well, the short answer is that over the 2000s, the trade and development reports have presented careful evidence-based critiques of Western governments' national economic and financial policies and of the policies prescribed by the organizations that Western governments control, like the IMF and the World Bank. Um, and also, um, more than any other international organization, UNCTAD um, warned about the dangers uh, of, in the world economy that were building up over the 2000s um, uh, as a source of growing financial fragility. Well, you might think that UNCTAD's prescience in anticipating the crisis would now be rewarded and applauded in the West and that Western governments would be keen uh, to hear UNCTAD's views, to give it more scope to explore the lines of argument that it was developing over the 2000s. But ever, as I've indicated, the answer is no, they certainly did not. The question is, what are the deep reasons for this um, antipathy? Um, I think the, the short answer to that question, what are the deep reasons, is that UNCTAD's trade and development reports have been articulating a, quote, social democratic policy direction, which is in contrast to the prevailing, quote, neoliberal, unquote, policy direction of most Western governments, notably the US and the UK, who are very influential in international development circles. Um, UNCTAD has been uh, developing a policy vision um, which combines the virtues of efficient markets for some kinds of transactions with macroeconomic stability, with social goals met through public services, with incomes policies, including legal minimum wages and caps on income inequality, um, with things like managed exchange rates, with things like uh, capital controls. These are the kind of um, uh, set of instruments that UNCTAD has been favoring. In contrast, the other international organizations controlled by Western countries um, have been promoting, ever since the 1980s, a neoliberal vision based on the idea that the market, not capitalism, but the market, they never talk about capitalism, and also the large corporation are preferable means for achieving most human ends than is the state. And so, um, these organizations, the World Bank, the IMF, have since the 1980s imposed conditions on their loans to developing countries which are neoliberal in their inspiration. Conditions such as wage flexibility, flexible labor markets, such as fiscal austerity through spending cuts focused on the social safety net and public sector wages, um, such as export-led growth um, so that with the export-led growth formula, exports become the source of demand rather than rising domestic wages or labor incomes. This is the sort of core of the agenda that the IMF and the World Bank have been promoting ever since the 1980s through things like structural adjustment loans. Well, through the, through the 2000s, as the good times rolled on, the Western countries more or less ignored UNCTAD or treat as it was, as UNCTAD was advocating a social democratic kind of agenda, 
or it, just, it treated Antad with the sort of annoyance that one would direct towards a fly, kind of swatted it away. But once the Western countries went into crisis, then their governments did not want serious challenges, serious intellectual challenges, to their intensification of a neoliberal policy response. And that basically is why the West collectively organized to try and marginalize UNCTAD um, at the Doha uh, ministerial. So this then leads me to the final point. It's a larger puzzle, and it's captured in the title of Colin Crouch's recent book called The Strange Non-Death, The Strange Non-Death of Neoliberalism. Since the 1920s, there have been two major crises in Western capitalism, not counting the present one. First in the in 1930s, the second one in the 1970s. Both of these two crises that preceded this one generated deep changes in the system of national policy direction. In the 1930s and 40s, we saw neoliberalism that had preceded um, in the 1920s. The neoliberalism of the 1920s was displaced by Keynesianism. And then the stagnation of the 1970s exposed the Achilles heel of Keynesian demand management, uh, namely that countries like the US and the UK, which had no kind of overarching corporate labor organization, um, were vulnerable to inflation because each group of workers would, would fight to raise their wages in anticipation of inflation and the, the set of all these wage demands generated inflation. Um, and so um, that led then to the stagflation of the 1970s. Well, given that there have, uh, and then after the, um, uh, in response to this stagnation of the 1970s, we had the very rapid a displacement of Keynesianism and its replacement by a sort of revamped version of the neoliberalism that had prevailed in the 1920s and before. So given these two um, e events where major crises of capitalism had generated major changes of policy direction, it is very puzzling, I think, that this third major crisis has not generated anything like a change of policy direction. On the contrary, the response of most governments has been an intensification of the kind of neoliberalism that preceded the crisis. Um, and so, um, just back to the current trade and development report, finally, it, it pushes back strongly against this um, intensification of the neoliberal policy direction and so in that context, you can understand why many Western governments are very antagonistic towards UNCTAD at the moment. Now, the Secretary General of UNCTAD, who presides over the whole organization, retires next year, 2013, and the head of the uh, key division of globalization and development strategy, namely Heine, retires at the end of this year, and the great question is, who will replace them? Because all the negotiations in Doha about the mandate, about the words that went into what UNCTAD can do over the next four years, all of these negotiations are a secondary issue in a way. The key issue 
is who goes into those two posts, the Secretary General post and the head of the Division of Globalization and Development Strategies. And you can be sure that Western governments will be out there looking for suitable people like the equivalent of Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General of the United Nations, somebody who will be basically compliant to the wishes of Western governments. They will be searching for people that they can uh, nominate into these positions. So um, the bottom line is watch this space. There's going to be a very interesting process going on in the next uh, year or so, or less than a year, as to who fills these two positions. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much. We have time for several rounds of questions, I think. I have one or two myself, but I don't want to abuse my role of chair. So perhaps we can take questions in groups of two and three. And there are microphones going around. Yes, back here on my right, please. Hi, yeah, I'm Faisal Shaheen from um, the New Economics Foundation. And I guess the first thing to say is that I've been working on issues of economic inequality for a few years now. And um, just to sympathize with how, how much antipathy, how much you can be undermined when you talk out about this issue very explicitly. And I had, um, had a two, two questions. One is, so what, what we do now in terms of, okay, we need to do something, we actually need to have government stimulus. So how can we use that stimulus and that increased debt to do something about the underlying issue of inequality? So, you know, I, I'm just interested in your ideas on that. And, and I guess the other, the other question I have is about, around this frustration of, you know, you're not the only person saying this. There are Nobel Prize winning economists from Stiglitz, you know, Krugman, people coming out about economic inequality. Even the OECD has kind of changed its tact on this, and even papers, working papers coming out of the IMF are saying that economic inequality was important for the financial crash. Now, what else will it take for us to start recognizing this as an issue and for governments to make a U-turn? And I'm just interested in if you think that actually governments won't make, take the U-turn that they need to take and actually we are, it's inevitable that we're going to have another collapse. Right, thank you. One or two more questions? Yes, down here please. Um, I have a slight concern about the way you've presented this as in effect an internal problem within developed countries of the weight rate relate relative to overall incomes. I mean, it seems to me that you could produce another explanation for that decline in wages uh, because it coincides exactly with the opening up of the world economy and basically the deindustrialization of most Western countries through their export of industries to East Asia and now, of course, increasingly to China. Uh, and of course that reflects on the possibility then of telling a country like Greece or indeed of Britain to increase wages in order to, in order to increase demand. Because of course increasing wages here, these workers are not competing with other workers in Europe and Britain, they're competing with workers who are earning two dollars a day in China. So it seems to me that if you're going to recommend increasingly interventionist policies, and I'm absolutely with you on that. It seems to me that an open market is increasing inequality and in inequality has now pushed the situation into a, a Keynesian crisis 
of hoarding uh, and declining consumption, which requires positive interventions to deal with it. But it seems to me that it has to go much further than simply saying, let's increase wages. Because if we increase wages without actually controlling borders, we're not going to actually solve the problem at all. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, very good questions. Uh, I have to make one remark. First of all, the one about the Secretary General of UN, I haven't heard. The second, my, no, two remarks. My second remark is that uh, I have to add an anecdote <laughs> on the <laughs> description that um, Robert Wade gave, namely uh, in Doha, in Doha, uh, we discussed, well, informally with a number of people, including ambassadors from the Western world, and I faced one ambassador, I should not mention who it was, but uh, I faced one ambassador over a coffee or so, and I said, so what, what is your position? Let me, let me understand your position. What you want is there should be only one opinion on all these important topics in the world for the whole world. So on macroeconomics, on finance, on global monetary system, on commodity speculation, and uh, all these macroeconomic policy questions, there should only, is that your position? There should only be one opinion and not two. Two is one too much. And the guy said he was shocked for a moment, but then he said, I think yes. <laughs> there should be only one opinion. One is enough. You only are happy with one opinion, or you're, you're only confused with two opinions. And again, tonight I have confused you. That's, I'm sorry for that. I apologize that I confuse you with another opinion. No, everybody in the world needs a second opinion. If someone is sick, and he is not happy with the first doctor, he's asking a second, second doctor. A second opinion is something like a natural right that everybody should have. But, and a plan B, and a plan C, or whatever. And if they want a different institution, they can create another institution with a third opinion, it's okay. But why kill the second opinion? I must only say, I, I can only say, as a Western person, I was ashamed. I was ashamed by the position of our own countries. Okay. So what are we going to do? Um, your question. Well, I think the only thing that would help out is, is a combination of several elements. To be very concrete, I think you need a government stimulus. There's no way out without a government stimulus. To a certain part, to a certain part, the government stimulus can be financed by taxing wealth, for example. But in general, tax, increasing taxes in such a situation of the world economy in a recession is not a good idea. All the other taxes I would exclude. So if the rest of the, this has to be financed by government debt, it's absolutely clear. And in those countries, where the markets offer them the lowest interest rates that they ever had in history. In the UK, in Germany, in the United States, in Japan. They have the lowest interest rate. If there is, I'm not a believer in market signals, but if those people who are believer in market signals do not see that there's a strong market signal uh, that the government should, should take uh, on more debt and should increase its indebtedness, then 
I don't know what a market signal is. This is the strongest market signal that you can have. Even my friend Larry Summers says it. Friend. Okay. So that's a very strong signal. So that has, has, we need a stimulus. And if the British government and other governments are saying we have to save, we have to tighten our belt, then I can only repeat what I said, what my last sentence of my statement was. They have no idea what they're talking about. And how can it be in a country where so many good economists are around, like in the United Kingdom, or yeah, I don't, I, at least some. So, and this has to be combined, as I said, this has to be combined with an ongoing expansionary policy by, by the central banks, that's absolutely clear. And the central banks have done revolutionary things already. I mean, that a central bank like the Fed has announced a low interest rates for the next three years is, is a revolution. Hmm? Some of these people really understand how desperate the situation is. Because having fixed central banks by, uh, fixed interest rates by the central bank for three years, uh, a, a good, a good uh, economist would have to call planned economy or socialism or something like that. So we need a combination plus. Plus, as I said, we have to turn around the expectations of the of the normal people, of the average household, of the common people, of the, the people who have been uh, suffering in the past, in the last 20 years. You have to turn it around and you can only do it by government action. And the government action has to be to put pressure now on the other side. Namely, to tell employers that they have to care for the people and they have to uh, uh, see that the people are getting, getting reasonable income and have the expectation that they get reasonable income. And that will benefit the employers themselves because if they further cut wages for one employer, and here is again one of the paradoxes between micro and macro, for one employer to cut wages is a good thing because uh, he can increase its comp his competitiveness. But again, not everybody can, if everybody cuts wages, it doesn't help. We have a wonderful chart in the, in the uh, trade and development report for those of you who have a copy about taxes, the taxes of corporations. The taxes of corporations were, were lowered in the last 20 years that no one, no reasonable person could have ever foreseen. The result is falling investor, in investment ratios. It's not rising investment ratio, not, not something autonomous that comes from companies. Companies depend on other parts of the economy and they mainly depend on their clients and their main clients are the consumers and not something outside in the world. That brings me to your question. So we have to move on inequality and we have to redistribute income to those people who are spending more instead of saving more. This is, and these are the people with the low incomes. To your question, China, it's China, huh? Yeah, it doesn't work. Even if we would try to fight China, it wouldn't work. Because China has a currency. Huh? And if we tighten our belt, if we are not increasing our wages anymore, and we are bringing China into trouble, that they lose competitiveness and whatever, well, they will devalue their currency. They are not in the European Monetary Union. So they can devalue their currency. And the currencies should be the equalizer, so to say, of competitiveness. We have made in the last, last year's trade and development report a proposal for a quick adjustment of exchange rates to the inflation rate of different countries. 
And it is absurd, an absurd idea, sorry to say that, that a country like Germany should lower its, its wages to the level of where? Where? Of China or even lower? Or is it enough to lower it to the level of Turkey or Poland? Why should we do that? Our productivity is high. Productivity is high and wages are high. China, the productivity overall is low and the wages are low. And if there are certain spots in the Chinese or other economies where productivity is high, then we should be happy about it because that is the way in which development, developing countries are catching up. They have certain spots of high productivity that they combine with lower wages and then they uh, gain market shares and they have a chance to catch up. That's absolutely normal. There's nothing extraordinary about it. But if the Western world would decide that we have to fight we go into a competition of nations, it would, could only end in disaster. And in general, the idea of competition of nations is one of the worst ideas that was born in the last 30 years. There cannot be competition of nations. There can be competition. I'm absolutely in favor of competition of companies. One company can push another company totally out of the market. But what happens if Germany pushes France out of the market? The people are still there, 60 million people. What are you going to do with them? Germans would say they're anyway only drinking wine and lying in the sun. Eh? <laughs> Good, okay. I'm living in France, I would join the others in France to do that. But then you have to give them the money to buy the goods that you want to sell to them. Eh? Otherwise it will not work. And you see, this is, this is another tragedy. Robert and me, we discussed it some time ago. I, let me give me one minute to, to, to say that. There was, after the First World War, there was the discussion about the reparations that Germany should pay to the Allies who won the war. Hmm? Germany should suffer. Germany should pay something. And there was only one person in the world who understood that that couldn't work. Not for social reasons or other reasons, but for economic reasons. And that person was called John Maynard Keynes. And he said, stop this foolish idea of punishing other countries for the apparently the deeds of, he said, the parents or the grandparents. It's not true. First, it's not true that they are guilty and the other ones are not guilty. He said, it's too difficult to understand. Justice is not so simple, he said, in the complex unwinding of the human fate. And that's right between Germany and Greece as well. There is no just blaming Greece for having done everything wrong and Germany uh, uh, celebrating for having done every, everything right. The world is not so simple. And if we understand that, then we would stop to ask the other countries to repay their debt, because that is exactly the same thing. Why could Germany not pay transfers? Well, because Keynes said you would, you would allow, you would have to allow Germany then to have current account surpluses to gain market shares internationally at your expense. To, you have to allow them to gain market shares that you are losing. If you don't want it and nobody wanted it, then forget about it. Then the idea is foolish because it cannot work. It's impossible. You're asking something impossible. And that is exactly what Germany and the other northern countries are doing with southern Europe at this moment of time. They say you pay back your debt that you have accumulated over the last 10 years, but we will not allow you to gain market shares. Hmm? Increase your competitiveness against the Chinese or so. 
but the Chinese may not allow it, and they would be right not to allow it. So this is, this is the situation. It's so foolish. We're asking some, the countries to do something impossible. And to, they try to do that. What they try to do at this moment of time, they're trying to do something impossible, namely they're cutting their wages. Dramatically. Greece now by 20%, Spain already by something like 10%. But if you cut wages in, a, in an economy where the external share, the export share is 25% and the domestic share is 75%, you kill the economy, your domestic economy, the whole economy before you have reached competitiveness. So even the 20% that Greece has cut its wages have first destroyed the domestic economy and only then uh, would, would maybe in, in a future time, if the country would ever reach that future, would increase the competitiveness. And for the world as a whole, it's anyway nonsense, because the world cannot increase its competitiveness against who? So this is, this is some really fundamental things that we have to understand. Sorry, I'm getting too long. My name is Sofianos and I'm from the European Atlantic Group. Um, taking the opportunity from your last point about Europe, I would like to focus on Europe. Um, and because um, in Europe, uh, well, I believe there's not the chance for, uh, I mean, at least for some countries, for government stimulus because they. I mean, the hands of uh, policymakers are tied less to become prey of a financial market if they announce uh, such programs. So, uh, I mean, I was wondering um, how high you put uh, on the agenda maybe the a debt mutualization or a, a surplus recycling mechanism within uh, Eurozone because we focused on on government stimulus, but if it, if it can't be done uh, within Europe, I mean, would you consider that an alternative? Uh, thank okay. you. Thank you. We have one more upstairs. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to thank Dr. Flussbach and uh, Professor Wade for their call. It's not working. Paul, Paul sorry. Oh, sorry, you have to hold a bit sorry. closer. I beg your pardon. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah it's okay. Yes. Yes. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to thank Dr. Flussbach and Professor Wade for their contributions. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Germany is often regarded as a key, in fact, to solving our problems. Um, a colleague... Um, um, Stockhammer, Inkelberg Stockhammer at Kingston University said that it would help a lot if the Germans could increase their wage levels. But that raised the problem which of the companies would be the first mover. Yeah, that's right. Another thing that occurs to me is that um, over the last 15 years of my teaching career, eight of them were spent in Germany. And the one thing that struck me is even young students, these are people under 25 had this impression of the hyperinflation in Germany in the 1929, and it still seems to be part of the obsession. <laughs> so I don't know what the uh, solution is. Um, what is. Is a solution, in fact, for Germany, in fact, to lead the Eurozone? And maybe there be, I don't know, 10 euros to a new, a new uh, Deutschmark. Uh, have you any thoughts on that, please? Okay. One last question. Yeah, okay. Um, like many in the room, I've read many a uh, a book or article about the Washington Consensus 
Um, can you explain, I mean, given all the criticism there's been over such a long time, can you try and explain kind of where the power behind this is coming from? Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, let me start with the last question. What is the power behind the, the Washington Consensus? Well, that's difficult. Uh, the power is the power. All the, the, the Western countries in the last, well, again, 30 years or so have decided, more or less, even with changing governments, to be on that side, to, to, to follow the neoclassical or neoliberal approach. Uh, and uh, despite a lot of uh, problems and shocks and, and that they have created. And even now, even after the big crisis, they, they're falling back into that position. So what is behind it is, first, is economics. We have still a dominant uh, uh, teaching and uh, theory in economics, and it is uh, sponsored by a lot of money that says neoliberal, neoclassical ideas are the best and are the right and uh, are unavoidable in the end. So this is one thing. The other thing clearly is the power of, of money, the power of, uh, of industry who believe falsely, falsely, falsely believe that if they are in power, so to say, and if the others are weak, if they are strong and the others are weak, the economy will, f will function best which is wrong. And that is, is, is exactly the point where we are now. Here comes the crucial question. Now the workers are weak, but we cannot only overcome the crisis if the government, so to say, representing the workers' opinion with uh, uh, more intelligence than, than the companies, turns the power back to balance, at least. This is a crucial point, and I am not naive. I know how difficult it will be. You see, the point to be made is, is harsh, but necessary. I had a, a presentation last Thursday with Richard Koo from Japan. Some may know him, who has written the book, The Holy Grail of Macroeconomics. We were preaching two hours together to uh, community of something like 400 German bankers who looked at us as if we were aliens from somewhere, who talk, talked to them in a language that they could not understand. Yeah, but at the end, one person said to me, so why? Why is it that it is so clear, you're absolutely right, how can it be that your opinion is not distributed as the others are? Yeah, what is it? It is, yeah, it is the media, at least in Germany, it's terrible. I think in Great Britain is a bit more open. But in Germany, the media are such that the people do not get these messages. And it's not, it's not I'm not talking about conspiration or some, something, but the people who are responsible in the most important media are all have been grown up in the last 20, 30 years by these ideas and they cannot escape from it. And at the end, Richard Kuh and said, you see what happened after the, the Great Depression. And that is really bad uh, and, and sad to say that. 
But what happened after the Great Depression was that the Depression, so to say, was never resolved intellectually, only by Keynes, but that came out later. Directly in the 30s, it was not resolved by Roosevelt a bit, but it, it disappeared, so to say. The solution disappeared in a big war. And then only after the war, some people were more enlightened and came back and said, we cannot go on like this. So unfortunately, if you're intellectually honest, you have to say you need big shocks. Without shocks, people are not willing to learn and are maybe not able to learn. But this is, this is what, we are, what we are facing now. Now coming to the other questions, uh, the question about uh, companies, I think, who was it? Um, who's, who's the first mover? I know you asked about the financial markets, yeah. Now the financial markets can be tamed. That's very simple. You see the ECB has done last Friday something very brave. They said we're going to stop the financial market from determining the interest rate in principle, that's what they said, determining the interest rate of Spain, Italy and other countries. If the ECB would have combined it with an idea like the ones that I have uh, shown here today, we would be out of the woods. But the ECB has combined it with austerity. The ECB has said only countries that are austere, that are further restricting demand, will get this uh, small reduction of interest rates. So it doesn't help. It was the right step, but with the wrong sign, so to say. Only if we learn that, that you cannot, you cannot restrict further in a recession, in the middle of a recession, then we can do it. But then you can do it. It's easy to do it. It's no problem. You see, the very small Swiss central bank has stopped the, all the financial markets of the world from appreciating the Swiss franc further against the euro. They stop it every day, every hour, every second. No problem. And nobody ever has questioned that. They can do it. They can print money. They have infinite amounts of money that they can use. So no market in the world can really challenge the central banks if they are determined and if they're willing to do the right thing. So that's, that's manageable. Then comes your question about the companies. Who is the first mover? No, there will be no first mover. I'm giving speeches in Germany uh, for, for managers and, and company owners and people agree even in the end. But then when I'm going out, one of them comes and says, says to me, yeah, if all the others would do it, I would increase my wages also. But I don't know whether they do it. That's the dilemma. And that can only be overcome by the government, by a decree, by the government, by a clear rule that the government says, well, wages have to rise in line uh, with productivity and the inflation target at least for the next five years. And then let's see what happens later. Yeah, it's the only way out. Let's not fool ourselves. It's, can only be done, overcome by an intelligent, a rational uh, government. And then uh, the question about hyperinflation, yeah, that's funny. Everybody says the Germans are, are fearful of hyperinflation and only hyperinflation, as if the Germans would never have had a depression. The others, the Anglo-Saxons fear depression, Germans fear hyperinflation. That's plain nonsense. It's what the media say. You see, that is what the people tell the Germans from the first day they're on, on this earth. They tell them, you have to fear hyperinflation and nothing else. Huh? 
But the depression in Germany was worse than in many other countries and it brought about the worst result that you can imagine in political terms ever in history. But that we should forget, but we think of the small period of hyperinflation of 1922-23, which was gone away by an intelligent central banker in a, in a couple of weeks. So that, is, that is manipulation, you see? That is manipulation of minds by people who have an interest in uh, having people only think about hyperinflation but not about depression. And that is what we experience every day, that you have this kind of manipulation and it's not without big money behind it. Let me give you the last anecdote if I'm allowed. Uh, we, had a, uh, we have done a big study about commodity speculation. We have done a big study about commodity speculation where we clearly show that finance, the so-called financialization of commodity markets is driving the prices in very many of these markets, in very many of these markets. We had a big conference in New York driven by uh, one of the very intelligent poli politicians on this planet, uh, former president of Dominican Republic, uh, Leonel Fernandez. We, we gave a press conference and to my right sa uh, said, uh, was sitting a, a, a senator of the Democrats, of the Democratic Party in the United States. And he was with me and he was with us and uh, 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 promoting this topic. And then I asked him at the end, I said, yeah, well, you are promoting this topic, what, what, what about your president? He said, yeah, on these topics, nobody can reach my president. Because he has a wall around himself or the White House. And the bricks of that wall are coming all from Wall Street. Thank you. Thank you very much. It remains to me simply to thank Heiner Flasbeck and Robert Wade for a very interesting and stimulating session and thank all of you for coming tonight.